Hey there, I'm Joey Dean, lead pastor of South Lakes Church in Oklahoma City. At South Lakes Church, we exist to be radically devoted to God, relentlessly committed to true community, and remarkably passionate for the lost. We hope your faith is strengthened and you grow closer to Jesus as you listen this morning. Now let's jump into this week's message. people in church and 700 of them are children I feel like so it's like when the kids thing leaves there's nothing more deflating for a pastor than when you see half the congregation get up and leave so hey but I'm glad that you're here I really am and I love the fact that we are who we are and so thanks for being here today and um Sorry, I coached my first soccer game uh, of the season uh, yesterday. I'm a little bit of a yelling coach, all right? I know that might shock some of you. Um, I also run along the sidelines with, with our kids. I'm like, go, go. And the other coaches just look at me like, you're an idiot, right? And I'm like, okay. Um, but then last night, I had one of the coolest experiences of my life. Um, there is a young lady who helped us start South Lakes. Her name is Gabby Garcia, and about a year and a half into uh, our South Lakes journey, Gabby came down with cancer, and she was only 20, uh, she was a kid, it's like 22, 23-year-old kid, and um, I've known her since she was a freshman, she used to be in my student ministry, and um, a couple years ago, she calls me, and she says, hey, Joey, got a few months, I need you to get ready for my funeral. So I got ready for her funeral, and, and we, we talked and worked all through things. And in my, in my database of sermons, I have a sermon called Gabby Garcia Funeral. About six months ago, she calls me, and, uh, and she says, hey, I'm engaged, and I'm getting married in April. Will you do the wedding? And I said, oh, yes, sweetheart, I will definitely do your wedding. And so um, last night, I got to officiate the wedding ceremony of a dead girl who should have been dead. And uh, she's the only person that I've ever written the funeral message for before the, before the marriage message. In fact, she's the only one that has Gabby Garcia mess a funeral, Gabby Garcia uh, a and uh, uh, marriage. Um, but man, so they're heading off on their honeymoon today, and I'm just excited. And you have never met her because you haven't seen her in two and a half, three years because of COVID. But I want you to know something. God is a God of miracles. And God is a God who can take a girl who's been given months to live and can give her a husband. And that is all. And she's still fighting the cancer battle, right? The Lord hasn't healed her completely yet, but you know what? He can and I believe that he will. And so anyway, so I'm excited to be here with you this morning. Uh, would you go ahead and grab your Bibles? If you're joining us online, man, I want you to act like you're just here. I want, I, I want, like you're here, and I want you to join along with us. Pull out your Bibles and turn to the book of Judges. So you're in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, and Judges, okay? And so I want you to turn to the seventh book of the Bible and turn to chapter eight of that seventh book in the Bible, okay? 
And as we gear up for today, as we continue our journey through our walk through the Bible, I would love for everyone to pull out your phones real quick, all right, if you don't have them out already. And I want you to open up the SL app real quick, our South Lakes app. And I want to walk you through a couple things because there is a special moment in the life of our church that is coming up next week. Uh, We are two weeks away from Easter. Next week is Palm Sunday, the Sunday where Jesus walks into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey to the shouts of Hosanna, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest, only to a few days later be shouted, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And so one thing that we're doing here as we walk through the Bible, if you're new with us this morning, then this is going to be a little foreign to you, but we're walking literally through the Bible from Genesis through Revelation. We're we're going through it. Our sermon today is based upon where we are in our reading plan. And as you read throughout the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, you see that God is a pretty big fan of his people setting aside time that's devoted just to him, okay? Festivals, feasts. Sabbaths. And so we are going to do that as a church family. If it's important to, listen, God never changes. He's the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow, okay? And so if he thinks it's a big deal thousands of years ago for people, his people, to set aside specific times that we're focusing on him, then he thinks it's a big deal today. He does. And so we are doing this as a church. And so next week is Passion Week. It starts with Palm Sunday, and then it goes to Good Friday, and then we get to Resurrection Sunday. And so here's some things that we're doing, and this is why I had you pull open your phones. Next Sunday night, we are kicking off Palm Sunday or Passion Week with a Seder meal. Now, the Seder meal is the last supper that Jesus partook in before he went to the cross. It's going to be in this room. And so if you open up your app, and I know online you may not be able to see, on the top there's a scrolling bar. If you scroll over, you can sign up for the Seder meal. Now, if you're like, I came to that last year, bro. I'm not coming again. We actually have a different presenter this year, um, and I'm really excited. He's actually the smartest pastor and the most I mean, I hate to say the most theologically sound pastor because every pastor I've served under, but he is just solid. Dr. Kevin Clarkson is going to be here doing the Seder meal, and I could not be more excited. The reason South Lakes Church is here today is because Dr. Clarkson poured into my life and asked me questions that got the Lord moving in my heart or got me open to the Lord moving in my heart where we, we were here today. And so I'm excited for my mentor, my friend, my pastor. Every pastor needs a pastor. My pastor is going to be here. And so if you're interested, it is limited, and so I need you to go there. But on Passion Week, what we're doing is that, you know what? They set up tents in the Old Testament. We're setting up a tent here in 2022. So literally this Wednesday, we're going to be setting up a big top tent um, out on the lawn. And next Wednesday, the 13th, Thursday the 14th, and Friday the 15th, from 6 to about 7, 7.15, and I know it's a school night. I get it. It's a pain in the butt. I get it. What we're doing is we're setting aside those three days of Holy Week, and we're saying, Lord, we give you this time. And we've got some of the best communicators, in my opinion, in the state of Oklahoma coming in to teach us a different message every night on, on the moments as we walk through Holy Week, okay? And so the reason I had you pull up the app, and especially if you're online, is that when you click on the Passion Week, it will tell so Wednesday, and it will tell you this is who the speaker is. This is what childcare is being offered. Thursday, Friday. On Friday, on Good Friday, we're going to have food trucks here. Miss Amber is putting together a scavenger egg hunt for families to participate in, and it's going to be like a big party on Good Friday, okay? So 
The reason I share this is this. I would love for you to begin to orient your calendar around making those three days special. Let me tell you how one way I'm doing it. I do coach soccer. We practice on Tuesdays and Thursday nights behind this building. Um, we will be canceling my Thursday night soccer practice, and I will be sitting down with 13 girls, 10, 10 years old and younger, and explaining to them why coach is canceling practice and why it's so important for coach to be here. And I want them to know. I want them to know that coach is a Christian and that coach takes being a Christian very seriously. And so I'm going to set aside some time. And I'm going to talk about that. And I would encourage you to do the same thing. I would encourage you to say, all right. And then for Easter Sunday, that's why we've got who's your one. Who's that person? Listen, I get it. Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, probably not a hot ticket item to invite a lot of friends to. I would encourage you to do so. But Easter Sunday, right? That's like the, the, the Willy Wonka golden ticket of, of Christianity in Oklahoma, right? It really is. So we have invite cards that are out there. One has Passion Week on it. The other side has Easter Sunday. I would encourage you to invite someone. We're rolling the dice. I'm super nervous. We've always run three services on Easter Sunday, and they're pretty full. Um, we're only doing the two normal services, which means this place is going to be packed, but I'm okay with that, all right? It's going to be okay, and so, but it's going to be packed because we're being intentional with inviting. So Passion Week, it's a time where in the first time in the history of South Lakes, we're saying as a body of believers, we're going to set aside this time for you. Lord, will you move in our hearts? Will you move in a powerful way, okay? Cool? All right. So Book of Judges, let's talk about where we've been uh, in case uh, you, you've missed out or, or, or you slept since the last time we've been together. So the book of Judges happens after the children of Israel enter into the promised land. So last week we walked through a nine and a half tribes crossing over the, uh, over the Jordan River into the promised land. And Joshua, in Joshua 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 21, those chapters, he divides out the promised land, okay? By the time you get to Judges, Joshua and the elders who helped lead the Israelites into the conquest of the promised land, they're dead. And in fact, the entire generation of, 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 of adults who crossed over into the promised land, they've all passed away. And there's a brand new generation of believers or, or, or of Israelites that are now in the promised land. And the, and the thing that this new generation is doing, they're faced with the same decisions that every new generation has to decide. What are we going to do with God? What are we going to do with God? Now, it's the always the responsibility of the previous generation to pass down. This is why God's important. This is why we worship Yahweh. This is why in our context, this is why Jesus is savior of the world and why you should put your faith in him. Deuteronomy 6 talks about that a lot. But the reality is this, is that every subsequent generation always has to have their own experience and make their own personal decision on if Jesus is going to be Lord of their life. It's the same thing. When I stand before the Lord someday, I am not going to give account for whether my four girls are saved or not. Now, I will give an account on how I discipled them, but I will not get, because it's a personal decision. My baby girls need to decide if they are going to make Jesus Lord and Savior of their life. Well, this new generation of Israelites are having to decide what are we going to do with God. The problem is that their parents kind of set them up for a little bit of a failure. And here's the reason. The Jewish life is very much like Joey's life. It's a life of compromise. And so when God says things like, this is what I want you to do in your life, Joey says, I'll go this far, but I don't really want to go farther. Anyone identify with me on that? All right. 
Um, and so what happens is that God says, all right, you're going to completely take over the promised land, kick them all out. Mm. They don't do that. They leave the pagan cultures there. He goes, I never want you to make a covenant of peace with your enemies. Ugh. They made covenants of peace. I never want you to intermarry with pagans because they don't have the same set of standards or they don't worship Yahweh. Ugh, they intermarried foreign nations, pagans. I never want you to worship foreign idols. They worshiped foreign idols. So by the time we get to Judges, we see that the Israelites are caught in this cycle of sin. In fact, I want to throw it up on the screen here. This is kind of, this is a description of, of Israel here. The top, Israel sins, and so God punishes her or, or disciplines her by raising up enemies. Israel a lot of people die. A lot of Israelites die. A lot of captivity. A lot of slavery. The Israelites get to a place of repentance. They turn to God. So God raises up a judge. I know it says deliver her here, but really a judge is more like a, a general, right? It's a military leader. So he raises up this military leader or this judge who rescues Israel. She enjoys this period of peace. The judge eventually dies, and then they start all over. In fact, this cycle happens at least seven times in the book of Judges, and it covers the book of Judges covers 400 years. So think about it. The book of Judges covers a longer period than the United States has been a nation. Okay? So for 400 years, this is what Israel's life looks like. And so the book of Judges, what it does is it introduces us to, to, to the judges that God raises up to deliver the people out of sin. And so today what we're going to do is we're going to focus in on one judge. We're going to focus in on my favorite judge. We're going to focus in on a man by the name of Gideon. And we're not going to focus in on the beginning of Gideon's life, even though that's a fascinating story. We're actually going to focus in on the end of Gideon's life. If, if, you, if you take notes this morning, you can do it in the app or you can do it however you're doing it on the, what you were handed in. Gideon's life could really be summarized with this question. Is God really enough? That's Gideon's life in a nutshell. It's constantly asking the question, is God really enough? Now, the reason Gideon's my favorite is because Joey's lifelong story up to this point is the question, do I really believe that God is really enough? And you go, but you're a pastor. Okay, doesn't mean I'm a good one, right? I mean, seriously, it's, that's the, and I think that's probably the journey of everyone in this room. When we ask ourselves the question, is God really enough? And what's crazy is that Gideon has some of the coolest stories. Like, because God constantly proves, I am enough. Like, for example, Gideon's the guy who has thousands of Israelites ready to go fighting the Midianites. And God says, oh, too many. You got you to let them go. So he goes, okay, anyone who's afraid, you can go home. Army cuts in half. God's like, ugh, too many. Okay, okay, I want you to go down to the river, and I want you to watch how they drink. And this specific person who drinks this way, they can be your army. And he gets on the 300 men, and God's like, perfect. And Gideon's like, okay. And then defeat thousands with 300 men. But even throughout that, Gideon still asked the question, is God really enough? So I want to pray for us.
and then we're going to jump in, okay? Would you bow your heads and close your eyes online? Do the same thing for me. I'm gonna, I want you to invite, invite you to pray these two prayers in your heart. Number one, will you pray this? God, help me to be present in this moment. And then secondly, God, will you speak to me personally this morning? And Father God, we come to you in the holy name of Jesus. And God, I ask that whether we're watching online or we're present in this room, I pray that your spirit would sweep over us. The same spirit that can take a dying girl who's got two months to live and can bring her to the altar of a, of a wedding is the same spirit that wants to do miracles today. And so, Father, would we be open to that? We love you. We thank you. We praise you. And it's in the Son's name we pray. And all God's people said, amen. All right, Judges chapter 8. Let's go ahead and read. We're going to pick up in verse 22. All right, 22. It says this. Then the men of Israel said to Gideon, Rule over us, you and your son and your grandson also, for you have saved us from the hand of Midian. And Gideon said to them, I'm not going to rule over you, and my son will not rule over you. The Lord will rule over you. Now, question. It's a true or false. It's not a trick question. I would love for you to say your answer loud and proud. True or false, Gideon's answer to the request is the right answer. True or false? True. It is, that's great. Hey, be our king. Man, God's going to be your king. Verse 24. Gideon said to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you give me the earrings from his spoil, for they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. And they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak, and every man threw in it the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the golden earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold, besides the crescent ornaments, the pennants, the purple garments worn by the kings of Midian, and besides the collars that were bound around the necks of their animals, or camels. And Gideon made an ephod of it and put it in his city in Ophrah. And all Israel whored after it there, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. So Gideon, or Midian, was subdued before the people of Israel, and they raised their heads no more, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon. So remember, everything is premised around this thought process of, is God really enough? And the way that we know, is God really enough, is really when it comes down to, do our actions and our words, do they line up together? Because I can say a lot of really great things, but if my actions do not follow up with it, then it's not really true. I can tell you today that I can go dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal. If you put a basketball in my hands and say, there it is, big boy, see what you can do, you're going to find out very quickly that I cannot dunk a basketball on a 10-foot goal. Why? Because the movie told us white man can't jump, right? It's just, I can say all I want, but I cannot actually execute. So what do your actions say about the question, the answer is to the question, is God really enough? So we're going to start off with asking you just some questions that really more of a litmus test here. Here's the first question. It's going to be in verse 22 and 23. The question this morning is, who's your king? Like, who is your king? Who is the one that 
has rule over your life. Now, what's interesting here is what happens is the Israelites come to Gideon, and they're making a request of him. They're saying, will you set up a dynasty where your family and your kids and your grandkids will rule over us? Now, the problem with this question is that Israel already had a king. His name was Yahweh. Yahweh was the king of the Israelites. But what happened, and when you get the first Samuel, and we'll get there in a couple weeks, uh, but what's going to happen is that the Israelites, when they finally settle on a king and they pick Saul, the reason that they wanted a king is because they looked around at all the other people, the other nations, and they said, you've got a king, and you've got a king, and you've got a king, and you've got a king. We need to look like everyone else We need a king. Now, Christian, let me tell you something. If your goal in life is to always look like everyone else in the world, then you are setting yourself up for a lot of disappointment and heartache. Our goal is not to look like everyone else. Seriously, but that's what's going on here. Plus, God said, hey, listen, if you're ever going to have a king besides me, I'll tell you who that king's going to be. They never consulted with God. Instead, the Israelites were desperate for a physical ruler. How disappointing for God. He's led them all this way, and his people turn on him and say, you're not good enough. We need a king. And the Israelites, they were just desperate for this. And let's just be honest, we suffer from the same thing. And when I say we, I really talk to me, and I hope that you're in the same boat that I'm in. Because we all suffer from the same once as the Israelites. Because we want and we actually crave for someone or something else to be put in the place that's reserved for God and God alone. And the reason we do this is because we, we view our lives very backwards from a biblical point of view. I heard a preacher preach this many years ago, and I just I wrote this quote down, and I use it sparingly, but man, it is an eye-opening one. And here's the quote. It says this, we are not human beings who are having a temporary spiritual experience. So that's how almost everyone lives their life. I've got 75 years on this earth. If I choose to be religious, that's my choice. But here here I am, YOLO. But the reality is that we are actually spiritual beings who are having a temporary human experience. See, your soul will live for all of eternity. And the shortest thing that you have about yourself is what you're wrapped in right now, your body. That's the shortest thing about you. And eventually, you will reach an expiration date. You will. But when we look at our life is the is the be-all, end-all part of who we are, and we look at the spiritual side as secondary, then it, it makes a lot of sense why we make the decisions that we make. Because if this is it, if YOLO is what we're doing here, I'm only going to live once, so let's choose how I'm going to do this. And if I have time, I'll squeeze God into the equation because he's like salt on the dinner table. He's a good seasoning. But when we realize, no, whoa, 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 this is temporary. Inwardly, that will last forever. It begins to change, and we begin to reorient how we live our lives. Because we are spiritual beings first. We are. And if you are a spiritual being first, by the way, I don't even care what you do with Jesus at this point. You don't have to be a believer to be a spiritual being. 
Seven and a half billion people on planet Earth, every one of them spiritual beings first. But if we are spiritual beings, then it only makes sense that we need a king who is spirit. We need a king who is eternal. I do not need a Joe Biden or a Donald Trump. I need a king who sits on the throne of of God for all of eternity. That's what I need because I'm eternal. I'm eternal. And so when we fail to recognize that we are spiritual beings first, then we begin to change everything and it begins to go upside down. It changes how I parent. Listen, I want my baby girl to score as many soccer goals as she possibly can this soccer season. But does that really matter in the grand scheme of things when it comes to eternity? No. But if I make that my end-all be-all, then I'm going to put all my stock in her being the best soccer player she can be. And I'm going to, I'm going to skirt around what the most important thing is. We talked about this last week. Discipling my kids to love Jesus more. You see, when we twist things around, then we want to put other things in the place of God. The question really comes down to who has the seat of control in your life? Or who's making the decisions for you in your life? And this isn't one of those cute, well, my wife makes all my decisions for me jokes. I heard a lot of those last night at the wedding, all right? No, this is really when push comes to shove, who decides? Who decides who you date? Who decides what your marriage looks like? Who decides what you watch on TV? Who decides what you read? Who decides what you listen to? Who decides how you parent and disciple your children? Who makes those decisions for you? Because go back to that quote, Mark. If I believe that the end-all be-all is that I'm, I'm a human being first and foremost and a spiritual being second, then I'm going to make decisions because I think I know what's best. But if I see myself as a spiritual being first, then I want to go to the source of the king who is spiritual. And I want to ask him, how do I do this? Because the reality is this. If it governs us in our decision-making, then it's an idol. If it governs us in our decision-making, it's an idol. And by the way, the number one idol that you and I worship are ourselves. Personal idolatry is the, is, is, is the source of all sin. Why did Adam and Eve choose uh, the, the, the apple or whatever in the garden? Because they loved themselves more than God. Because they choose, chose themselves. But a choice needs to be made. And even though Gideon says all the right things, we are going to see that his actions do not demonstrate that. So the question is, who's your king? Let's keep going on. Second question is this. Let's look in verse 24. Gideon says to them, let me make a request of you. Every one of you, give me the earrings from his spoil. And verse 25 says, and they answered, we will willingly give them. And they spread a cloak and every man threw in the earrings of his spoil. And the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was 1,700 shekels of gold. So second question, if we were, when we're evaluating, do your actions and your, and your words match up? Okay, is this, who or what gets your best? Who or what gets your best? So Gideon makes this really, really weird request. He's like, hey, bro, I'll take all your gold earrings. So let me give you two history lessons. The first one is this. Um, Back in the Old Testament, um, two different parties would enter into a covenant together. I've talked about this before, but I just want to give you a quick Reader's Digest version. So when Two parties would enter into a covenant. There always had to be a greater party of the two. And so the greater party was called the suzerain. 
And this lesser of the two would be a vassal. So when you would enter into a covenant or a contract, what would happen is the vassal would give a portion of their wealth to the suzerain, the greater. Why? To pledge allegiance to them, to show their submission to them. The Israelites had already experienced this. They called it a tithe. Why did God ask for the Israelites to give a portion, 10% of all their spoils, to the temple? Because they were in a covenant, and he wanted the Israelites to recognize, I want you to give a portion to me, pledging that I am the suzerain, and you are the vassal. I am the greater, and you are the lesser. So that was set up. And so what happens is that when Gideon says, I will, take, I will take a portion of your spoils, and I will even make it easier for you. I want your gold earrings. What was happening in that moment is the entire nation of Israel was pledging allegiance to Gideon because they were entering into an unofficial covenant with him. Whoa, that kind of changes things. I thought they were just giving earrings. Mm. Nothing's in the Bible by happenstance. It's all there for a purpose. You just got to dive in deep and say, okay, what does this mean back then? So what does this mean for us today, though? Well, I think we ask ourselves the question, well, what gets our first fruits? Like, what gets the best of us? And I think there's three key, key areas. I don't think these are going to surprise you. What consumes your time, your money, and your energy, because the reality is this, whatever consumes your time, money, and energy, that's what's getting your best and demonstrates your allegiance. So I make no qualms about it. I got four girls, and so I feel like I have a right just to say it as much as anyone else. I, we are the chief idols in our lives, but the biggest idol in the United States of America are kids. Our kids are the biggest idols in the United States of America. We allow our kids to rule the house and rule our time and our money and our resources. Why? Because we want our kids to be happy and we want the best for them. That's great. There's nothing wrong with that. But is it, what it how it should be? How it should be? Let's go back to if I am a physical being experiencing temporary spiritual, then that makes a lot of sense because I want my kids to have the best life they possibly can and I want them to have it now. I walked uphill both ways with no shoes and a snowstorm. By golly, I want to drop my kids off in a caddy because I want them to have better than me. Nothing wrong with that. But if I say, wait, I'm a spiritual being first, experiencing a temporary spirit, a physical body, then all of a sudden, it's not about giving my kids everything that they want. It's not even about orienting my entire life around them. It's about orienting my entire life around God and then pointing my kids to that. Now, can I still go to soccer? I mean, I coach it. Can I still go to Little League games? Absolutely. But man, if it's sucking the life out of you, can I just be 100% honest? You're walking in sin. I'm just telling you. Now, you can walk out these doors and never come back to South Lakes, and that's great. But I'm just telling you, whatever is sucking your time and energy and all of that, that is what's demonstrating what's getting your best. And I could go into way more, but you guys saw, we had like a thousand kids leave this room 
So I'm talking to a bunch of parents. And so it makes sense that that needs to be the key thing that we talk about. I told you I had two history lessons for you. The first one was about covenants, about the suzerain and the vassal. The second one has to do with earrings. Did you know that it had been 150 years before the Israelites had earrings in their possessions? 150 years. In fact, the last time we saw earrings in the possessions of the Israelites was all the way back in Exodus chapter 32. So let me give you a, a quick recap. Exodus 32, Moses is up on Mount Sinai. They just walked out of 400 years of slavery. And the people on the base of the mountain, they get antsy. And they go, well, I think Moses has gone around the other side of the mountain, and he's left us here to die. So they turn to Aaron, who is the second in charge, and they go, hey, you're really good at making things with your hands. Will you make us an idol that we can worship. And so Aaron goes, I will take all of your earrings. Now they had a bunch of them because if you're walking with us through the Bible, when Israel walked out of Egypt, they plundered Egypt. They went to their neighbors and said, hey, can I have all your gold? And they said, sure. And they just gave it. They ransacked Egypt on the way out. So they had a lot of gold. And so they gave it all. So when Moses comes down in Exodus 32 from Mount Sinai, everyone's dancing and having a good time bowing down around a golden calf. And in one of my favorite interactions in the Bible, and this is just because sarcasm is one of my chief spiritual gifts. Moses goes to Aaron and says, what did you do? And this is what Aaron says. The people threw in their earrings and out popped this cow. I don't know what happened. And Moses is like, well, let me show you my show, my, 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 Size 11 shoe, what's going to happen now, all right? But what happens in, is in Exodus 33, the Israelites make a vow that they will stop wearing earrings as a reminder of what happened the last time they did. Fast forward 150 years later, and Gideon, they have just defeated the Midianites and have earrings. And he goes, let me have your earrings. And what does he do? He creates what's called an ephod. Now, I don't have time to go into all that is. An ephod is a special ornamental piece that goes over um, the, the cloak or the, the, uh, the clothes of the high priest. It's got 12 stones in it representing the 12 uh, tribes of Israel. And there's only supposed to be one ephod. It's only supposed to be worn by one person. And it's supposed to be kept wherever the temple is. That's what you need to know. So what does he do? He makes his own ephod. And I want you to look in verse, uh, where is it? Verse 27. It says, and Gideon made an ephod of it, and he put it in his city, in Ophrah. And then all Israel hoard after it there, and it became a snare. Uh-oh. Gold earrings, part two. They made another idol. See, the reality is this. As soon as Gideon said, let me have your earrings, there should have been warning bells going off, going, oh, danger, danger, Will Robinson, right? Like, it should have happened. Instead, they didn't think anything about it. And this is the danger of when we stop giving God our best and when we put other things. Because when things creep in that aren't good for us, 
our warning bells just don't go off as much. Why? Because we're not tuned into the things that the Lord wants because we're too busy being exhausted at giving everything else our time and our resources and our money. So when we are watching something that is not the most uplifting or we are in a relationship, whether it's dating or it's a friendship that's not the best for us, it's toxic. When we do spend our money in ways that is not kingdom advancing, but my own personal kingdom advancement. When we begin to have our time consumed by other things, if we were giving God our first fruits and our best, when those things happen, we should sit there and go, danger, danger, danger. I'm going to give you a great example. I'm going to make a lot of people mad. This is what online church has become. There is a danger when God's people do not gather corporately together. And we have made going to church so easy that you can sit at home. And I love our online audience. And I get it. People are sick. But I also know there's a lazy, apathetic attitude in the United States. And there should be warning bells going, wow, I haven't been to church in months. That's not healthy for me. I should get there. But instead, the warning bells don't go off. Why? Because we're not giving God our first. We're not focusing on him being king. And I'm sure our views are tanking right now. I get that. But it doesn't change the fact that this is what happens when other things get first fruits, is that the warning bells just don't quite go off as much. Here's the third thing. What do our actions say about our theology? What do our actions say about our theology? First off, what is theology? Theology, in a simple way, is just the study of God. Um, it's what you believe about God. Every person in this room, whether you're a believer or not, you have a theology. Okay, It could be a good theology. It could be a bad theology. It can be an unbiblical theology. But everyone in this room, you have a view of God. You have how you understand who God is. And then that's, that's how it is. Okay. So for Gideon, what we see here is that after he says the right thing, no, God's enough. The rest of his life shows that he doesn't really believe that God's enough. We already talked about some examples. He set up a covenant. He set up an unofficial covenant. He created an idol. But I want you to look at the other things. Look in verse twenty-nine. It says Jerobel, the son of Joash. Jerobel, by the way, is Gideon. It's another name for Gideon. Went and lived in his own house. Now Gideon had 70 sons and his own offspring, for he had many wives. And his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, and he called his name Abimelech. And Gideon, the son of Joash, died in a good old age and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father at Ophrah of the Abrazites. See, there's other examples of where Gideon actually didn't believe that God was enough. One way is that he had a huge family. And I have four girls, and I got to tell you, I'm pretty poor with four girls. I get it, all right? And they haven't even gotten into like the expensive stuff yet, right? But it's, it, it costs money to have a large family. And if I had 70 kids, well, you'd be having my funeral right now. I mean, but that's expensive, and that takes a lot. And what this shows us is that Gideon, maybe he said, I don't want to be king, but he sure lived like a king because he amassed such a large family and large a large amount of wives. And it's interesting. I said nothing happens in coincidence. There's no happenstance in the Bible. He has 70 kids, but there's only one of them named, and it's Abimelech. 
Why? It's because the word Abimelech literally means my father is king. My father is king. If you think that God is enough and you decline to be king over a nation, do you name your kid the very thing that you said you weren't going to be? No, because he didn't really believe that God was enough. In fact, he sets up his own children in ruling capacities around Israel if you go back and look in Judges 9. But the point is this, is that after the question was asked, the remainder of Gideon's life demonstrated that he lived as though God wasn't enough. And we see that through his actions because it didn't line up with his words. See, our actions will reveal our theology. I'm going to give you four areas real quick. I know I wish I had time. If this was a sermon series, we would totally unpack these every week. Four areas that you should examine about what you believe about if God is enough. Is God enough in your personal life? Is he enough in your personal life? And I'm going to just focus in on one thing. Part of being the pastor is I get to share what I'm bad at, right? And so and hopefully some of you are along the same line. In my personal life, one way that I do not demonstrate to God that he is enough is that I am the worst at resting. And I'm not talking about sleeping at night. I'm talking about intentionally taking time to rest. And I, I don't do that. And when I choose not to rest, I don't trust that God's enough because I feel like I constantly have to be going. Home life is another one. We talked about this last week. How do you disciple your kids? How do you love your spouse if you're married? What does that look like? Does it demonstrate that God is enough? Work life. Are you the hardest worker while on the clock? Do you work as unto the Lord? Are you a chief encourager of those that you work with or those that you are in charge of? Are you a life sucker or a life giver on the workplace? FYI, no one likes to be around the Christian life sucker. Last one, church life. Are you busy building up fellow believers here at the church? Are you active in serving and participating? Do you seek people who are far from God and share the hope that you have? Listen, I, I shared, like Easter is like the Willy Wonka golden ticket of, of Christianity in the United States. That's why, like, we've got these cards, and that's why we want you to be praying for who's your one. I've got a lot of people that have emailed me who your one is, and I've been praying for that person that you want to share and you want to invite to. Does your church life show that God is enough? And the question is this, like, if you want to really get me to buy in, you really need to answer the question like, okay, but, but why? Like, why? Like, I am not a blind follower. Like, if you, like, hang out with me for five minutes and you'll be like, oh, he's not going to follow that through unless we really talk him through it, right? So the question, the last one is this. So my actions line up with my words. Why? Because I want people to see that God is enough in all things. But really, what is the benefit of this? What is the benefit of lining my actions and my words up? Well, let's go on and let's read. Look in verse 33. Well, actually, I want to back up real quick in verse 27. And it says that after Gideon made that ephod, it says, and all Israel whored after it, and it became a snare to Gideon and to his family. Then 
Go down to 33, and it says, As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again, and they whored after the Baals and made the Baal Barus their god. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God. Now, can I just take a time out, and I just want to disagree with Scripture for a minute? I think the correct way to do this is not that they did not remember. I don't think they knew in the first place when they were going into it. I don't. I don't. But they did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side, and they did not show steadfast love love to the family of Jeroboam or Gideon in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Well, that's ironic. The guy who said, I don't want to be king, ends up becoming king. And what happens to the people? They turn on his family. They turn on them. So what's the benefit? It's this. You will not become a stumbling block to others. You will not become a stumbling block to others. Why? Because people will see that what you say is most important lines up with what you say is most important. The best litmus test that I can give most everyone in this room, because you all have kids, is ask your kids, what does mommy and daddy think about God? And your kids will tell you what you think about God. And they will not lie. And they will tell you the truth. And they will tell you, it's like looking into a little mirror that talks. Mirror, mirror on the wall. Do I love God at all? Well, daddy, let me tell you. (laughs) That's what it's like. Ask your kids. It's a great test. So, um, several years ago, um, when I served in um, Duncan, we adopted a people group, an unreached people group um, called the Bengali people. And I was on a mission trip to New York. We had identified a section, a subsection of Bengali men who um, had moved over to the States to save up money to be able to bring their families over. And so I was in a park one day with a, with a Muslim, um, very devout Muslim. And um, I asked him, I said, hey, can you tell me, and this was like day three or four, like we had gone to the park several days and we had shown them like, hey, we're not here to like proselytize. We're just here to love your kids. And they allowed us to share Bible stories. And it was a really cool evangelistic thing. And so he, by the third or fourth day, he was pretty, pretty chill. And I said, hey, will you tell me, what do you think Christianity is? And he says, oh, that one's easy. Christianity is whatever we see on HBO. And I said, what? And he goes, yeah, over, over in my home in Bangladesh, he goes, we get HBO and Cinemax and Showtime, and we get all of those. And he goes, because those networks come from the United States, that's how we view Christianity. And I go, so what do you think about Christianity? He goes, well, you like a lot of sex. Nudity is great. And your vocabulary is very limited. And I said, so you think that HBO represents Christianity? And he said, oh, absolutely. And I didn't share this in the first service because I I suppressed it. (laughs) He said, and you know what? Since being in the United States, it's proved to be right. 
hey, that United States that we're all proud of, that's what we're projecting to a lost and dying world. I wish I could tell you the Holy Spirit came down and touched that guy's life and he gave his life to Jesus. We walked away shaking hands. We were very cordial and I've never met the man. I've never seen the man again. We could be used as an incredible catalyst to shoot people towards God or as a great stumbling block that could keep people far away. And it doesn't even really have a lot to do with what you say. It's how you act. It's how we respond. And my fear is that we have made Christianity so much a word religion, meaning that if you say it enough times, you just believe it's going to be true. Listen, I have tried to dunk a basketball my entire life, even at the prime of when I played a lot of sports in high school, right? And I did, I, I, I did, I was, I was, I was, I, I was active. I never could, nine and a half, that was the most. And no matter how much I sat there and go, I can do it, I can do it, I can do it. Like someone said, you want me to get you a step stool? <laughs> like Saying it over and over and over and over and over again is not what the world's looking for. The world is looking for those that say, no, I'm here and I believe this and I'm gonna live this. Gideon's life did not do that. So every week, I've started this last week, and we're going to be doing this until Jesus comes back or the cows come home, whichever happens first, okay? Um, I really want to move us to action more, and I really want us to think through, what do I do with this message? And so I'm going to be asking you guys the same three questions every week to help you process. And so Landon's going to come on up, and I want you to look at your notes or pull out your phone if you haven't done it yet, all right? And here are the three questions that I want to ask us this morning. The first one is this. What is God calling you to do right now? What is God calling you to do with this message of, do my words line up with my actions? Or do my actions show that I do believe that God is enough? What steps do you need to take? Whatever that might be, I don't know. What is God calling you to do right now? Maybe you've never come to a place where you've asked Jesus into your heart as Lord and Savior. Today is a great day to know that there is a God that loves you in spite of yourself, and he died for you, and you don't have to wait to Easter to ask him into your heart. You can ask him here right now. In fact, it's super simple. It's like, hey, God, thank you for dying for me. I am a messed up sinner, and I don't deserve your love. Would you forgive me and come be king of my life? Whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Romans 10, 13. Tattoo that in Hebrew on your arm, all right? You can take that to the bank. Second question is this. Who can go with you? Christianity is a communal thing. We're never meant to do this journey on our own. So if God gives you an action step, then who can go with you? Maybe it's your community group. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's friends. Maybe it's someone, I don't know. I, I don't, maybe it's a coworker. But who can go with you as you go to implement whatever God's calling you to do? And the third thing is this. When will this be done by? 
I think it's the most important question. When is your due date? When are you going to say, I'm going to do it? And by the way, don't put down like in a month from now. Most action steps need to happen like as soon as we walk out these doors. Those are the three questions. What's God calling you to do? Who can go with you? And when will this be done by? Christian, you are called to be salt and light. Let's stop sticking our foots in our mouth and live a life that we say is important. I'm gonna pray for you real quick. Father, I come to you in the mighty name of Jesus and I pray over everyone in this room and I pray for everyone online. Hopefully they're still here. (laughs) And Father, you call us to a life of action. You call us to a life of obedience. Father, you call us to a life of being salt and light. First in our families, then to our neighbors, then in our workplaces or in our friend groups. You call us to be difference makers. Father, I will be the first one to confess that there are too many times that my life has demonstrated that you have not been enough. And I want to confess to you this morning that for that, I have been wrong. And I'm going to confess and I'm going to do it about a million more times between now and when I get to see you face to face. But Father, thank you that your grace is sufficient. Father, as I pray over a room full of people, a room full of brothers and sisters in Christ, a room full of those that are searching, perhaps a room full of people that maybe have lost their way, some of them. God, I invite your spirit as we did in the morning, in this beginning of the service, Father. Man, show them what you want them to do. What is their next step? Is it salvation? Is it repentance? Just saying, I've been wrong. Is it a reaffirmation that they're on the right track? What is it, Father? We are a people of action. So may we act. So church, I just want you to look at your notes or look at your phone or whatever. I just want you to ask yourself the questions. What is God calling you to do right now? Who in the world can go with you in this? And when will this be done by? Thanks again for listening to this message. For more information about South Lakes Church, go to slchurch.life.